from National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Science is getting ready, and the market seems eager for custom-designed DNA that can be passed on to future generations. There have been some international polls about whether parents would want to enhance their children, either physically or mentally, if they could, and the results have varied from a low of about 25% in Japan to as high as 80% of parents who say they would in Thailand and India. But as designer genetics take hold, some see a dark side. We will inevitably then create two classes of people, the gene rich and the gene poor. And I think that one group will kill the other group. And that kind of what I call genetic genocide should be simply unacceptable. The debate over designer babies. Also news that antibiotics in the environment can harm plants. This week on Living on Earth, coming up right after this. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Amtrak's recent financial woes all boil down to one basic problem. Congress thinks the passenger rail service should be self-sufficient, while Amtrak says it needs federal subsidies. A promised loan guarantee from the federal government averted the latest crisis, but Congress is still pushing the railroad to restructure and cut costs. I'm joined now by Hank Dittmar, a trained proponent who heads the Great American Station Foundation. Uh, Tell me, Mr. Dittmar, why is it so difficult for Amtrak to be financially self-sufficient? Well, it is basically running on the private tracks of the private railroads, and so they have to... um, pay them for the use of those tracks. They have to run a system that is essentially a 19th century rail route network and have to cobble together the votes every year from Congress to run that route network, which means running some routes that may not otherwise pan out. And they have inherited from the original legislation that created Amtrak a whole lot of obligations. For instance, paying for the railroad retirement system inheriting um, union contracts. But further, it's just basically true that transportation systems can make back sometimes the cost of operations, but not the cost of capital. The airlines get the government to pay for their airports and the air traffic control. Our highways are paid for by taxes, and uh, we need to expect that the same kind of framework needs to be set up for passenger rail. This is a big push in Congress right now towards privatizing the railroad and opening up the passenger rail business to competition. How would that work? How could that work? Well, if you open up the present business to competition, but you still continue to subsidize the contracts, I expect that you would get some competitors to run trains. If, however, you asked these private companies to run without subsidy, I expect you would get no bidders. And so... It depends on what you think. If you think that private companies can operate more efficiently than government companies, you might make some savings. England has tried this, and they're actually reconsidering the great experiment and moving a lot more of the decision-making and policy back into the government framework. Well, surely there are some advantages to privatization. What are they? Well, you might be able to privatize certain operations, and in privatizing them, hire companies that pay lower wages and have operating costs from paying lower wages. And some people think that is a plus. In other cases, it may be that if you franchised out certain parts of the train operation, for instance, essentially do what the airports have done in moving from one sort of 
low-end vendor that supplies all the food in the airports to bringing recognizable companies in to supply brand names, and that's increased overall revenues. The federal government would like to see uh, the states get more involved in the passenger train business. What's the plan there? Well, I think the idea is that if you want enhanced service in a particular state, um, states can invest to improve service, and that model has worked for Amtrak successfully on the West Coast. California has put millions and millions of dollars into upgrading stations and buying trains, and so have uh, Oregon and Washington. But that model presumes that you have a national system which runs a national route structure that and operates to national standards and provides a basic level of service. The Mineta proposal, the Bush administration proposal, actually seeks to get federal government out of supporting rail with any operating funding altogether and asks the states to take that over. My conversation with state officials has been that they're totally unwilling to take that deal. They're willing to have a partnership, but not to be handed the whole uh, ball of wax. Hank Dittmar, if you had the final say, what kind of plan would you lay down for the future of Amtrak? I'm glad you asked that question, Steve. Um, We need a national network of medium-distance rail routes, and we need to interconnect them in the same kind of hub-and-spoke system that we have for air travel. And we need to link them with our intercity bus system and with our airports. Creating that kind of connection, as we are beginning to do at Milwaukee, at Newark, at Providence, Rhode Island, begins to create a more secure system, and it begins to create a more economically viable system. So I would fundamentally redraw the map, and at the same time I would uh, begin to try to create some structures for financing that encourage the private sector to invest in some of these improvements and maybe encourage uh, the airlines to think about collaborating to run joint trips that involve both air and rail. You outlined an ideal view of the future of Amtrak. Looking at what's going on now on on Capitol Hill and the financial arrangements that are being made, what do you see down the road these next few months, these next couple of years for Amtrak? In the next few months, I expect that we will continue to see Amtrak lurch along. Next year, with a new Congress and the opportunity to reauthorize the air, rail, and highway bills, I think there's the opportunity to move some legislation forward that provides stable basis for federal-state partnerships to expand the system. Obviously, we need to see at the same time a commitment from Amtrak to operating efficiency and transparency, but I'm hopeful that if that happens, the logjam in Congress will be overcome and the opposition of the Office of Management and Budget to Amtrak will be overcome by the clear indication that the public supports it. Seventy-five percent of the people think that we should have high-speed rail in this country, according to a Conference of Mayors poll. So it seems that ought to weigh in with the president in some way. Hank Dittmar is the president and CEO of the Great American Station Foundation, an organization that works to revitalize communities through their railroad stations. Thanks for taking this time with us today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to talk to you. For years, biologists have warned that an invasion of non-native zebra mussels threatens fish and plant species throughout the Great Lakes and other inland waters across North America. Now, underwater archaeologists say zebra mussels are also destroying historic shipwrecks. Brian Mann visited an underwater museum in Lake Champlain and has our story. 
It's mid-afternoon, and a haze floats over the dark green water as dive master Doug Jones ties his boat to a yellow buoy. Vermont's green mountains rise in the distance, but my destination this morning lies below the waves. Forty feet down on the silty bottom sits the wreck of a ship known as the Burlington Bay Horse Ferry. I suggest you do a tour around the wreck. It is possible to duck underneath part of the decking that's there. Please don't. Okay, it's very fragile, especially the spokes to the paddle wheels that are sticking out. The horse-powered ferry is one of six ships in Lake Champlain's underwater historic preserve. Sites like this one are sprinkled throughout the country's big freshwater lakes. From commercial barges to warships, archaeologists say these wrecks hold a hidden chapter of our history. Good. Perched on the dive platform, I go through a final equipment check. I'm sheathed from head to toe in a wetsuit, insulation against the cold water. And a big step out. Now come on over here and hang on to the buoy. Here in Lake Champlain, each wreck has its own buoy and a network of guide ropes to prevent novice divers like myself from bumping against the ship's fragile timbers. After a pause to get my bearings, I slip below the surface. The water is ice cold and thick with green silt. But soon I reach the bottom, and there it is, the bow of the ship peeking out of the shadows. I glide slowly past the delicate spokes of the paddle wheel and drift above the intricate, exposed ribbing of the deck. The horse ferry is the only known example of this type of vessel in North America. Back on shore, Chris Sabick is director of conservation at the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum. He's built a half-scale model of the ship and its complex gears. It was a vessel type that was fairly widespread during the 19th century, but it's one of those vessel types that has slipped through the cracks of, of history and just kind of faded away. You wouldn't think that a murky lake bottom would be an ideal place to preserve a wooden treasure, but in fact, Lake Champlain's chemistry is perfect. The fresh water is cold and calm. The silt actually protects artifacts from bacteria. Some wrecks have rested in lakes for centuries, completely intact. But now that's changing. Sabic has added a box of tiny brown and white shells to the Maritime Museum's display. The zebra mussel arrived in the United States in the late 1980s, carried in the ballast tanks of freighters traveling from Europe. Zebra mussels have spread rapidly throughout the Great Lakes, devastating whole ecosystems. They eat by siphoning away the phytoplankton that once supported the food chain. Native fish and plants starve and soon disappear altogether. Zebra mussels also build huge colonies. They've clogged intake pipes at power and water treatment plants, and they've anchored themselves to the timbers of hundreds of historic wrecks. The enormous weight of hundreds of thousands of these shells on waterlogged wood can obviously cause things to collapse. Scientists studying sites like the Burlington Bay Horse Ferry have also found that zebra mussels actually change the water's protective chemistry. It seems that the microenvironment that exists deep inside the mussel layer or colony attracts a type of bacteria that accelerates the degradation of the iron. Uh, and obviously all these shipwrecks are fastened with iron fasteners. Over time, Sabic says, these wrecks could literally come apart at the seams. 
Back in the water, I draw close to the horse fairy's bow. Thick layers of zebra mussel shells coat the deck. In places, not an inch of wood is visible. Researchers say they won't know for several years how much damage has been done here. But without a way to stop the spread of zebra mussels, scientists fear that underwater museums like this one could be lost forever. For Living on Earth, I'm Brian Mann in Lake Champlain. Coming up, a surprising risk from antibiotics. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey. Studies have shown that men who take vitamin E reduce their risk of getting prostate cancer. Now, new research from the University of Rochester may have discovered why. In its early stage, prostate cancer must receive androgen hormones like testosterone in order to grow. But for that to happen, testosterone has to first latch onto a protein called the androgen receptor. When researchers exposed human prostate cancer cells to vitamin E, they found the supplement blocked the formation of this crucial receptor. They believe that interference is why the PSA levels in these cells plummeted as much as 90%. PSA protein levels indicate the degree of cancer growth. Current prostate cancer drugs either stop the production of testosterone or block the hormone from binding to its receptor. So this new research offers the possibility of attacking prostate cancer in another way. The researchers say this study is promising, but until more work is done with people, they can't recommend that every man take vitamin E to prevent the disease. The scientists also cautioned that not all types of vitamin E produce the dramatic results. The most effective form of the supplement they found is vitamin E succinate, also known as alpha-tocopherol succinate. That's this week's health update. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Getting caught unprepared in a summer storm can be inconvenient. But for residents of Red Ruth, England, back in 1886, forgetting an umbrella may have had painful and slimy consequences. 116 years ago this week, a violent thunderstorm darkened the sky above this Cornish town and rained snails down upon the countryside. Impossible, you say. Well, although rare, this sort of occurrence is not unique. Frogs, toads, snakes, fish, and even turtles trapped in ice have fallen from the heavens. All that's required is the right combination of storm and unlucky projectile. Massive updrafts within tornadoes and thunderstorms can measure over 100 miles per hour, and that's enough to haul even an adult human being into the vortex. When the storm passes over a pond, a stream, any place really, loose objects can be sucked up into the air. These missiles can remain airborne for some time. That was the case seven years ago in Moberly, Missouri. A whirling twister rolled through downtown and lifted cans of soda from the double cola bottling plant. The storm eventually dropped the cans 150 miles north near Keokuk, Iowa. These types of gales probably pick up many different sorts of items in their path. But scientists suspect that objects weighing about the same, such as soda cans or snails, are dropped at the same time. And that's what people notice. So the next time someone says it's raining cats and dogs, duck. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac.
Emerging research is now showing that antibiotics are apparently toxic to some plants, including valuable crops. Much, if not most, of antibiotics given to livestock and feed and as medicine gets excreted. Often this manure is used to fertilize crops. Humans also take antibiotics as drugs, and much of that can wind up in sewage sludge. Janet Roloff is senior editor at Science News, and she joins me now. Janet, while scientists have looked at the effects of environmental antibiotics on wildlife, the effects on plants have been mostly ignored until recently. Uh, Tell us, what are some of the results? Well, generally, with uh, fairly high concentrations of antibiotics, but not beyond what could occur, you're getting a stunting of plants, and in some cases, they just die. Well, what does this all mean, then? For a farmer, it can mean reduction in yields and therefore income. In addition, there's always the risk that even if it doesn't hurt a plant so that you can see the effects, these plants may be pulling up the antibiotics and holding them so that if it's something you eat, you may be bringing these antibiotics to the dinner table, and that's definitely not something you'd want to do. What plants uh, are these antibiotics showing up in? It hasn't been a real comprehensive survey, but so far they've seen them in pinto beans and peas, soybeans and millet, corn, barley, some water fern, and uh, at least three weeds. How likely is it the farmers are already seeing the impact of antibiotics on their crops? It's really too early to tell. It's certainly possible, but because nobody's measuring the levels of antibiotics in the manure and sewage sludge that's being applied to fields, nobody knows who's vulnerable. The kinds of impacts you would expect at the concentrations typically found where they are observed in manure or sludge would probably lead to a subtle loss of yield. And in that case, it might be easily missed for the kinds of variation from year to year that you would see from weather or climate change or even whether pests were hitting you this year. Two years ago, I bought some bags of cow manure uh, to put on a flower bed with some pansies and and some other annuals I was growing in there, and nothing happened. It was like I hadn't put any fertilizer in there at all. And I wonder if it's related to this. Well, interestingly, there's a group of agricultural researchers in Western Canada that made a similar observation not too many years ago. At the time, they were trying to measure the impact of manure, how much was beneficial. If two pounds per unit was good, was four pounds better. And they actually found out that the more they added, the worse the plants grew. They didn't know what to make of it at the time. When I asked them about antibiotics as a possible factor there, they said they never thought of it back then, but it's definitely a distinct possibility. How big a problem could this be, Janet? Well, it could be a reduction of, you know, 10 to 15 percent in the yields of a particular farmer's crops, and that's money that's lost income for the year. In addition, there's always the situation where you may be bringing this stuff to the dinner table, and that's not exactly what you'd want to be feeding your kids. It can contribute to antibiotic resistance, meaning drugs won't work so well in people who are eating these things. Overall, at this point, it's really early stages of the research. Who knows how many plants are affected and at what concentrations, and actually how much of it is actually being delivered onto fields. Nobody's making those measurements yet. If someone were to discover that this was a problem, what would be some of the ways to deal with it? Preliminary research suggests that there's a couple strategies farmers might want to take, at least from the manure angle, and that's that if you can make sure that the manure gets mixed around with lots of oxygen, it tends to encourage the growth of bacteria that will break down these drugs. In addition, sunlight might do the same thing. There's some preliminary work that's suggesting you can 
cut the drug content in manure by half if you have this manure out in sunlight and turned around a lot. And there's also, it can be sequestered, um, the drug just sort of bound to various types of soil, and so you might be able to put some kind of additives with your manure on fields when you're putting it in there to basically tie it up and make it not available to plants. From the human end, because we haven't been talking about that much, but the drugs that you and I take can also end up in the environment the same way. There could be a tailoring of waste treatment processes, basically your sewage treatment plants, you would add a different process that would make sure that it pulls out these drugs. Right now, there's been no effort to do that. Janet Roloff's story about antibiotics and plants appeared in the June 29th issue of Science News. Thanks, Janet, for taking this time with us. You're welcome, Steve. In the late 1970s, naturalist and author Peter Matheson described the Salu Game Reserve in southern Tanzania as, quote, Africa the way it used to be. Today, this World Heritage Site is one of the largest strongholds of wild animals left on Earth, and it remains mostly untouched and undiscovered. Tom Verdi visited the Salu and has this story. The first thing that strikes you as you fly and fly and fly over the Salu is its sheer enormity. At 22,000 square miles, it is by far Africa's largest game reserve. Denmark could easily fit within its borders, so could Belgium, twice. Lying east of the Great Rift Valley's frowning, rain-soaked mountains, about 90 miles south of the Tanzanian capital of Dar es Salaam, the Salu offers just about everything you could ask for in an African wilderness. Rolling savanna, grassy plains, and woodlands thick with thorny acacia, comically fat baobab trees, and towering barassus palms. And, of course, wildlife, lots of it, some 36 different species in all, including hippopotamus, impala, wildebeest, cape buffalo, giraffe, warthog, zebra, and lion, not to mention 440 species of birds. A place of extremes, the Salu is also home to some of Tanzania's last black rhino, while on the other hand, it sustains Africa's largest populations of crocodile, wild dog, and elephant. Sooner or later, they all come to drink along the banks of the Ruaha and Rufiji rivers, two pristine waterways that bisect the reserve and empty into the Rufiji Delta, one of East Africa's largest water catchment areas. In short, the place is an ecologist's dream, an uninhabited and largely unexplored ecosystem. One species you won't find in abundance here is Homo sapiens, and with good reason one that's about the size and color of a peppercorn, but with twice as much bite. Um, the Salu has never been densely populated in its history because of the tsetse fly. The tsetse fly precludes the possibility of domestic livestock production. Frank Carey is a guide at the Salu Safari Camp, one of only half a dozen tourist camps operating in the reserve. In addition to the tsetse, which carry bacteria harmful to cattle, goats, and other domestic animals, the Salu's rock-hard black cotton soil, says Carey, is impossible to cultivate, another natural safeguard against human habitation. Mother, 
But neither bad roads nor pesky flies kept big game hunters in search of crocodile and other trophies out of the Salou during the early years of the last century, including one Frederick Courtney Salou, an English writer, hunter, and naturalist for whom the place is named. In his books, he, he uh, started to regret if he'd shot too much of something. Hmm. But one must remember in those days a type of exploring Englishman. This was, you know, like candy in a store. It just it seemed inexhaustible. <laughs> Established as a hunting reserve in 1922, the Salou still attracts hunters, now under stricter government control. Yet their continued presence, ironically, makes it a safer place for wildlife. Half of each substantial hunting fee, as much as $30,000 for a two-week safari, goes right back into the management and conservation of the reserve. Without this money, says Kerry, the Salou might well disappear. Tanzania, like a lot of African countries, are poor. They've got very small budgets for the administration of national parks and game reserves. There would be very little reason for anyone to want to look after that kind of country, so it becomes a vacuum which then could be poached out. I mean, it would be a no-go, no-man's land or something where, where there'd be no administration at all. Hunting takes place in the southern part of the reserve, while here in the north, along the hippo-choke banks of the Rafiji, is where you'll find the Salu's handful of safari camps. There are far fewer game drives and tourists here compared to northern Tanzania's more popular destinations like the Serengeti. Access, or rather lack of it, is one reason. Over the last half century, while northern Tanzanian tourism developed as an adjunct to neighboring Kenya's popularity, fueled by the likes of Ernest Hemingway, the Salu remained the provenance of only the most determined. Before the days of regularly scheduled flights, a fairly recent development, by the way, getting to the Salu from Dar es Salaam meant traveling across open country in a four-wheel drive for hours, sometimes days, over roads and bridges that half the time were washed out and impassable. All the more reason to take advantage of the preferred method of viewing wildlife in the Salu, a walking safari in the company of an armed guide. Walking, you're on the ground, and it puts you in a, a, a far richer experience. We can stop, we can pick up dung, we can smell it, we can hear everything. It's a wonderful feeling. Getting down and dirty with the ecology of the Salu needn't always involve the close scrutiny of animal dung. The extraordinary complexity of the African bush, Carrie demonstrated, is just as evident in the simple branch of an acacia tree. Now, as you see me manipulating it, ants are coming out. Lots of them, swarming from a cancerous-looking growth on the branch which the tree itself created as a home for the ants. It also generates sweet-tasting sap as food. The insects do pay for their room and board by protecting the tree from leaf-hungry herbivores like giraffes. Just how do some of the world's smallest creatures square off against the tallest? They can sting. Now, if you've got them on your hand, it's, it's not a problem at all. But if you imagine them on the lining of your mouth, okay, they don't taste nice and they do sting. So you'll see a giraffe eating off a tree like this, and he'll take, oh, maybe up to five mouthfuls of different branches, and he'll move on to the next one. And the ants are running around, and uh, he's eaten but he hasn't eaten the tree to a standstill, so in actual fact, there's been a compromise reached. 
1981, author Peter Matheson published Sand Rivers, an account of an extended walking safari through the Salou. He concluded that for this unique habitat to survive, it must be self-sustaining. With the income from controlled hunting, not to mention the ingenuity of those ants, this unspoiled mass of African wilderness appears safe, at least for the time being. For Living on Earth, I'm Tom Verde in Tanzania's Salu Game Reserve. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. The gypsy moth has plagued the forests of the northeastern United States by eating the leaves of deciduous trees such as oak and aspen. The descendants of a single pair of gypsy moths can denude millions of square feet of leaves in just two short generations. Authorities usually try to cope with gypsy moths by spraying pesticides, but Indiana is trying insect perfume. Dr. Robert Waltz is an entomologist for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. He's here to explain how they're using tiny flakes of synthetic moth pheromones. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's good to be here. Thank you. Can you tell me about the pheromone flakes? What are they and how they'll do the trick in controlling moth population? Well, the pheromone is really a, a marvelous development. It's the scent of a female moth. And the race or the kind of gypsy moth that we have here in North America, the females do not fly. And so the way that they connect with their mates or potential mates is by sending out a chemical signal that draws the males to them. And this is called a pheromone. And this pheromone has been synthesized and placed into a little plastic flake, probably no more than a sixteenth of an inch long or so. And this flake will emit uh, very slowly this scent of the female moth. And so by dispersing this scent throughout a forest uh, is what happens. The males cannot locate the females, and they don't mate. And as the song goes, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> now, how do the pheromone flakes uh, get introduced to the male moths? They're actually flown over the woodland by an airplane and actually released just like you would with a um, spreader, like a crop duster kind of a plane. And uh, they drop the flakes out, and then they stick to the leaves and uh, start working. It's a technology that works only on the leading edge, or what's called the, the front, because the populations of gypsy moths need to be rather low for the pheromone to actually work. If their populations are very high, the males can easily see the females, and once they see the female, they don't need to use the scent anymore as their guide. How effective is this pheromone technique? What kind of results do you think you're getting? Well, as an example that we've used in uh, prior years here in the state of Indiana, we had a situation in which we uh, used it over about a 3,000-acre area. And in that particular area, we dropped the counts from what were several thousands of moths in that area to the level where that we only think had six or eight moths trapped that following year. So it worked out very well. Dr. Robert Waltz is an entomologist for Indiana's Department of Natural Resources in Indianapolis. Thanks for taking this time with me. Well, thank you. Just ahead, designer genes, as in genetics. First, this environmental business note from Jennifer Chu.
Los Angeles may be the city of angels, but it's also a notorious center of air pollution. A good chunk of that comes from the millions of vehicles traveling along the freeways of LA every day. But if you're in town for business or pleasure, there's an environmentally friendly alternative to putting fossil fuels into the atmosphere. EV Rental is the only electric vehicle rental agency in the country, located at the Los Angeles International Airport. The company started in 1998 and deals exclusively in natural gas, hybrid, and electric vehicles. Congress recently gave the agency $2 million to expand its operations. Company officials say the money will be used as down payment to purchase 350 hybrid electric vehicles from Honda and Toyota. That would increase its fleet by more than 100%. EV Rental estimates that since opening, it has reduced the amount of vehicle emissions originating from the airport by 25 tons. It has also saved 200,000 gallons of gasoline. So far, L.A. is the company's major host, but electric vehicle lovers can find branches in Phoenix, Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C. That's this week's Business Note. I'm Jennifer Chu. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Each week, we bring you Living on Earth to help keep you informed. Now it's your turn to tell us how we can serve you even better. So we've set up a survey on our website at www.loe.org where you can give us some feedback and help us plan for the future. Let us know what stories you like or don't like. And please tell us what we should have more or less of. And what about the Internet? How can Living on Earth serve you best over the web? Just for taking the time to give us this information, we'll also send you something. Everyone who responds to this survey will automatically get a chance to win a neat little waste pack generously donated by the outdoor clothing, technical apparel, and gear maker Patagonia. And everyone will also receive the Living on Earth list of the top 10 household plants that can help keep the air clean in your home and office. So please, go to www.loe.org and tell us what you think about what we do and how we might do it better. That's www.loe.org. And click on the Living on Earth poll. Thanks. And now we continue with our series, Generation Next, Remaking the Human Race. Today, we look at the possibility of creating designer babies. In animal experiments, scientists have already developed techniques to change the genetic code in the early stage of an embryo's life. The resulting offspring has that genetic change in every cell of its body, and its offspring will also have the same changes. It's called inheritable genetic manipulation. Proponents say that applied to humans, inheritable genetic manipulation could eliminate the worst genetic diseases and help parents have children with the exact traits they want. But critics say that's a new form of eugenics that could lead to dangerous attempts to design a master race. Producer Bob Carty reports. Squib Nocket Beach is on the southwest corner of Martha's Vineyard, a famous tourist island off the coast of Massachusetts. Today, there are some children throwing stones at the waves, a few brave teenagers swimming in the cold water, and a retired couple walking on sand dunes. All amidst them, the sounds of the beach, waves breaking on the shore, pebbles rattling as the water retreats, seagulls above, bellboys out at the point, and everywhere, the wind. Squibnocket Beach would have looked and sounded much like this even 150 years ago. But back then, many of the people on the beach would have heard this. Silence. 
It's the silence of the deaf. In the middle of the 19th century, in the area around Squibnocket Beach, one in every four babies was born deaf. This part of Martha's Vineyard had the highest national rate of deafness in the country. Every family expected to have somebody, whether it be a great aunt or an uncle or a cousin or a sibling, to have a hearing loss. Marcy Nichols is a long-term resident of Martha's Vineyard. Her own daughter was born deaf, possibly because of a peculiar genetic development in the historical settlement of the island. It began 400 years ago with a group of English immigrants who came from County Kent with a recessive gene for deafness. There was one deaf person that came over in the early 1600s and settled here on the island. And because it was a very isolated, very rural community, they tended to marry cousins. There might be two or three children out of 16 or 17 that would be hearing impaired in a family. For 300 years, the deaf people of Martha's Vineyard had no idea their disability was caused by their genetic code. Today, we not only understand that, but almost have the tools to change it. Some scientists say that they will soon be able to rid the world of genetic diseases and disabilities, and Gregory Stock believes it should be done. Gregory Stock teaches at UCLA's School of Medicine and is the author of a new book called Redesigning Humans, Our Inevitable Genetic Future. I think that the most dramatic form of the manipulation of our genetics will be germline intervention. The word germline comes from the germination of a seed, and that's actually going into the first cell of a human embryo and altering the genes. Now, if you go in and make an alteration in the first cell of an embryo, those alterations would be copied into every cell in the adult organism. So it's possible to avoid the most obvious, simple genetic diseases by doing that sort of intervention. That's a, a revolutionary development. Germline manipulation is distinct from other genetic technologies. Genetic screening is commonly used today to identify and possibly abort embryos with diseases like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs. But screening doesn't change any genes. Gene therapy treats somatic or non-reproductive cells. But germline manipulation changes all of our cells, including eggs and sperm, so that the changes are passed on to all future generations. Theoretically, that means we could rid the human gene pool of recurring genetic diseases. And if we could wipe out diseases and disabilities, why not use the same technology to give our children new abilities, the traits or enhancements we would want them to have? we could gain, for the first time in human existence, the power to direct our own evolution. Gregory Stock says, why not? There have been some international polls about whether parents would want to enhance their children either physically or mentally, if they could, and the results have varied from a low of about 25% in Japan to as high as 80% of parents who say they would in Thailand and India. Are you talking about parents sort of deciding that they could, uh, what, enhance their children with a Michael Jordan gene for athletics and a David Letterman gene for comedy and a Mother Teresa gene for compassion? Oh, well, I think that uh, these choices would be to choose a child who is much more likely to have certain kinds of personalities and certain kinds of capabilities to give their child all the best advantages. What you're seeing here are, is one of the microscope, and these are the micromanipulators. You actually will have a plate that will have an egg cell in it. An egg is, is smaller than the tip of a pen. In a research lab in Worcester, Massachusetts, Robert Lanza shows off the tools of the new biotech revolution. Lanza is vice president of medical and scientific development at a company called Advanced Cell Technology. 
and these probes actually allow us to suck out the chromosomes and the DNA out of these egg cells. Robert Lanza is at the forefront of controversial research into cloning human embryos for stem cells. And the tools he uses for that could also be used to make germline changes in the human race. But Robert Lanza says he and his company, much as they like to be seen as scientific pioneers, will not do that. But he understands the temptation. We already know how to use gene knockout, for instance, to create twice the body mass or the muscle mass in a mouse by simply knocking out a gene known as myostatin. A mouse or other animals will create twice the muscle mass. So you could easily understand where a parent might say, okay, if I knock out this gene in my child, that child will now be the greatest athlete on the planet. But the sad thing there is, is what if that child grows up and wants to play chess? The parent will have made that decision for the child, and so we don't believe that it, it's correct to tamper with the germline. While promoters of germline manipulation trumpet the choice it gives to parents, scientists like Robert Lanza point out how it takes away choice for the child. But that's just one of the critiques of germline manipulation. There are also questions as to whether it could ever be done safely. Take the experiments done so far in animals. The so-called Arnold Schwarzenegger gene was given to cattle to make them produce more meat. Unfortunately, they couldn't stand up. In mice embryos, one extra gene caused the offspring to develop cancer at 40 times the normal rate. And another genetic change in mice produced infertility, but it was only recognized three generations later. The problem is that genes do not act in isolation. If you change one gene, you don't know what it will do to others. And humans have at least 30,000 genes. As Robert Lanza points out, genes that we think are bad today could prove to be really valuable tomorrow. For instance, there's something known as sickle cell anemia, which people say, oh, this is a horrible disease, but in certain environmental settings, that has an advantage. It has, for instance, a protective effect against malaria. So again, I don't wouldn't think that we should pretend to know enough about human evolution to know that eliminating this disease is going to be desirable in the long term for the survival of the species. Which raises a fundamental question. Are we right to assume that it's always good and desirable to get rid of genetic diseases or disabilities? A good place to ponder that question is Squibnocket Beach. 150 years ago, children would have been playing on this beach, just as they are today, but they would not be talking to each other. They would be communicating with their hands. What happened here was that deafness was so common it wasn't considered a handicap. The community made up its own sign language. Everyone learned it, the deaf and the non-deaf. There was signing in the schoolroom, signing in church services, signing at the town hall meeting. According to Marcy Nichols, that meant that a genetic disability, deafness, became normal. It was just an accepted way of being. It was just some children had blonde hair, some children had brown eyes, some children couldn't hear well. It was an accepted part of the island. It was an abnormal part that was accepted as normal. And I think my daughter's perfectly normal. Acceptance is a wonderful way of being. But acceptance of disabilities is threatened by new genetic technologies, according to Andy Imperato. Imperato is the executive director of the American Association for People with Disabilities in Washington, D.C. He argues that germline engineering is rooted in the flawed idea of fixing people with disabilities instead of fixing society's attitude towards them. All of the various genetic interventions start with the proposition that, of course, disability is an anomaly that once the science is, is there, we'll be able to wipe off the face of the earth. 
And to me, that's very scary. Many of us are proud to be people with disabilities, aren't looking for a cure or a fix. It's not a high priority for us. What we're looking for is a, is a higher quality of life with our conditions and trying to get the society to adapt so that we can get the supports we need to participate fully. The greatest fear for germline manipulation is that it could represent a new kind of eugenics. Eugenics was a notion born in the late 19th century that the so-called worst elements of society shouldn't have children. In the early 20th century, it led to laws in the United States that eventually sterilized 60,000 people considered genetically defective. And then there were the frightening eugenic experiments by Nazi Germany in its quest for a super race. Proponents of germline manipulation say these are exaggerated fears, that there are too many Hollywood plot lines about genetically engineered super warriors. James Watson, the co-discoverer of DNA, has said that, quote, if we could make better human beings by knowing how to add genes, why shouldn't we? And Gregory Stock of UCLA argues we should embrace this new technology. The hostility towards these sorts of possibilities is that it's sort of... It's unnatural that this is playing God. It's very much a religious reaction. I would say that, yes, it is like playing God, and we are playing God in all sorts of ways. Is this a new eugenics? This is eugenic in the sense that it is an effort to avoid diseases, to enhance human potentials, but most people are not opposed to that. We already do eugenic things when we abort a child that is going to have Huntington's disease. It's when government intervenes and makes larger decisions for people and enforces certain ideas about what is a desirable and an undesirable child. And as long as we protect and safeguard our freedoms, then it will not be a problem for us. To my mind, that misses the point. It's not that uh, the eugenics is public or private, not that it's state-sponsored or corporate-sponsored. It's what it does to humanity. George Annis is a lawyer and chair of the Department of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at Boston University. George Annis contends that germline engineering will be something only the rich can afford, and that as wealthy parents in wealthy countries enhance their children, it will create a new class division in society, one with a potential for violence. We will inevitably then create two classes of people, the gene rich and the gene poor. I'm pretty certain that's going to wind up in some kind of genocidal exercise. At some point, there'll be a sufficient number of them to either pose a threat to us or we'll pose a threat to them. And they will look at us as a subspecies and or we'll look at them as a, as a subspecies, different than human and therefore not endowed with human rights that we could kill, enslave, uh, uh, deport, do all kinds of horrible things with. And I think that one group will kill the other group. And that kind of what I call genetic genocide should be simply unacceptable. Many critics of germline manipulation would like to see the practice banned outright. Among them is Patricia Baird. Baird is a pediatrician and geneticist, and she was the chair of a Canadian royal commission that was recognized internationally as one of the most comprehensive studies on reproductive technologies. Dr. Baird is a woman of science who nonetheless criticizes technologies when they diminish what it means to be human. I think that is truly frightening because it could change our species and our societies over the next millennium in a way that we become products and manufactured and other people choose our futures for us. If we want to improve our 
children's lives and how they'll do. We need to love them, we need to nurture them, we need to have good educational systems, good workplace policies. We already know an awful lot about how to do that. Hundreds of years ago, the people of Martha's Vineyard made a decision about their humanity. They couldn't do anything about inherited deafness, so they accepted it and changed the way they communicated with each other. As a result, they made a lot of lives fulfilling and normal. Today, we may soon have the ability to make other kinds of choices, ones with the promise of repairing and enhancing the human genome, but also with the risk of polluting it. How we make those decisions will, like the decisions made here, also reflect on the character of our humanity. For Living on Earth, I'm Bob Carty on Martha's Vineyard. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Our series continues next month with a look at gene therapy. Scientists believe directing therapy at an individual's genes can be beneficial, but some worry about the dark side. I've gotten several calls from groups who want to explore the possibility of using genetic engineering to create soldiers who are going to be less affected by toxins like Agent Orange, or using genetic information about people for biowarfare, in fact, to be able to create an anthrax that hones on to a genetic code so that you can target certain ethnic groups. It's Gene Therapy when our series Generation Next, Remaking the Human Race, continues next month. Before we go, let's put our ear to the ceiling of a cottage in Norfolk, England. Beetles occupied an exposed oak ceiling beam. Sound recordist Chris Watson set up his microphone in the wee hours of the morning to capture these sounds. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at www.loe.org. Our staff includes Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, Anna Solomon Greenbaum, and Al Avery, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Julie O'Neill, Susan Shepard, and Carly Ferguson. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our interns are Jamie McAvoy, Max Morange, and Emma Uwadakunda. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues, the National Science Foundation supporting environmental education, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service. This is NPR, National Public Radio.